Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America. It was the summer of 1973 in Three Forks, Montana, and the Jagger family were on a month-long camping vacation touring the West. On June 25th, they were camping in the Missouri Headwaters State Park, a recreational area comprising 535 acres of woodland alongside the Missouri River. The state park is known as a popular haunt for vacation makers, wanting to be close to nature, and is replete with bountiful fishing spots, hiking trails, hunting areas, and water-related activities. Just five years earlier, the state park had become a no-go zone after a little boy was stabbed in the arm and then clubbed to death after an unknown person cut a hole in his tent. But by now, That was just a faded memory, and the state park was as popular as ever. That night, seven-year-old Susan Jagger went to sleep in her tent with her sister and two of her brothers. Her parents and older brother slept in their camper nearby. At some point around 4 a.m., Susan's sister awoke to find a large hole in their tent, causing the fabric to flap in the breeze. She scanned around the tent and quickly noticed that Susan was gone. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Nina Instead. Welcome to episode 63, the penultimate episode of season two of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. Susan Jagger was the youngest of five children to William and Marietta Jagger. The close-knit family lived in the Detroit suburb of Farmington, Michigan, where William worked as a dye designer for McDonough Engineering Company, and Marietta was a stay-at-home mother. Susan was described by her loved ones as friendly and warm, but also very timid. Her best friend's mother, Catherine Rudberg, said of her, She's a normal kid, afraid of the dark, and so on. By the summer of 1973, Susan was preparing to enter second grade at Farmington's Beachview Elementary School. 
On June 17, 1973, the Jagger family all piled into their mustard and white Chevrolet van with their red trailer attached to the back. The family had planned on a fun-filled month-long vacation touring the West. They planned on capping off their trip at Glacier National Park. Excitement was running high as the family hadn't had a vacation in two years, and the past year was spent planning the trip in great detail. It was part vacation and part scoping out the area with the prospect of moving to Montana in the near future. William and Marietta had both become concerned by the increasing violence in Detroit. They thought Montana would be a safer place to raise their children. William and Marietta had purchased the family a brand new tent, two motorcycles, as well as hiking boots, in preparation for what was anticipated to be the trip of a lifetime. In the two weeks leading up to the trip, the tent had been pitched in the family's backyard. William and Marietta had wanted the children to get used to sleeping in the tent outdoors, especially little Susan, who was afraid of the dark. She and her sister, Ruth, had attempted to sleep overnight in the tent in the backyard, but during the night it began to rain. The two girls became fearful of the rain combined with the impenetrable darkness and ran into the safety and security of the family home. The tent remained pitched in the garden, and all of the neighboring children had taken turns sleeping in it, roasting marshmallows, and pretending that they were on a camping trip. On June 23rd, the Jaggers arrived in the Missouri Headwaters Park, where they met Marietta's parents, Mr. and Mrs. William Liptak, who had been traveling all across the country in their trailer since the previous fall. The family parked their trailer and pitched their tent under a promontory overlooking the headwaters of the Missouri River. The first night went off without a hitch. William, Marietta, and their eldest son, Dan, slept in the camper van. Susan and her 13-year-old sister, Heidi, slept in one of the tents alongside their two other brothers. The following night was a particularly cold one, and the children went to bed in their sleeping bags, fully clothed except for their shoes. At around 4 a.m., Heidi awoke when she felt a slight breeze coming in through the tent. She wiped the sleep from her eyes to see that there was a large slit in the tent, directly above where Susan was sleeping beside her. It was dark, and Heidi felt around for Susan, only to discover that her sleeping bag was empty. Heidi immediately woke her brothers and her parents, and a frantic search for Susan ensued. Just outside the tent, the family found Susan's teddy bear and stuffed reindeer on the ground, as if they had been dropped as she was ripped from the tent. Susan was reported missing, and the sheriff assigned 15 officers to the investigation, and they quickly began looking for the little girl. The family's campsite was surrounded by rolling hill country, near two rivers which came together with a third river to form the Missouri. There was also dense woodland surrounding the campsite, which made the search an arduous one. The investigators started at the campsite and then fanned out further afield, calling out Susan's name in vain. A sniffer dog was called in to assist in the search for Susan, but they couldn't pick up a scent. Based on the ominous aspects at the campsite, they surmised that Susan had been the victim of a kidnapping. Sheriff Leslie Anderson announced to the public, There is a strong possibility we have a kidnapping on our hands. 
They speculated that Susan's kidnapper had carried her out of the tent and then carried her for some time before taking her to a vehicle. This explained why the sniffer dogs could find absolutely no scent of Susan. The sheriff asked the public to keep an eye out for Susan and requested that any farmers and ranchers in the Three Forks area check all of their outbuildings for any trace of her. Meanwhile, police boats were dispatched to the area and scoured the waters of the Missouri and the three rivers that form it, which gave Three Forks its name. As soon as the public were made aware of Susan's suspicious disappearance, they came out in droves, offering their time to partake in the search. Concerned locals began searching the dense woodland on foot, making sure to check in any abandoned structures or any other places where a child could fit. By the second day of the search, the Bozeman FBI office was asked to take over. They dragged two rivers in the Missouri Headwaters State Park, just south of Bozeman in Montana. There was an overwhelming sense of fear that Susan could have been killed and then disposed of in the waters, but the waters turned up no trace of the little girl. As the search was ongoing, the FBI also set up a nationwide alert at gas stations for Susan. They surmised that if she had been abducted, then her kidnapper would need to stop for gas at some point. The disappearance of Susan brought back awful reminders of a crime that had happened in the same location just five years earlier. Twelve-year-old Montana Boy Scout Michael E. Rainey had been camping with 200 other scouts and 20 adults when somebody cut a hole in his tent and then stabbed him in the arm and clubbed him in the head. The murder of Michael stunned the community, and despite an exhaustive investigation, his killer was never identified. The Jaggers had pitched their tent just a couple of yards away from where Michael had been attacked. As investigators worked, they realized that the two cases were remarkably similar. The first lead came on June 29th, when a tourist reported seeing a girl matching Susan's description in the company of three young men in a car at the Opportunity Rest Area around 1.30 p.m. The witness described the car as a light blue Volkswagen sedan and said that the men were all white men, aged between 25 and 30, with long hair. The FBI released an all-points bulletin for the vehicle, in which they referred to the disappearance of Susan as a possible kidnap homicide. Two reported sightings of the vehicle came in promptly. One person reported seeing the car and the little girl the following day at a basin gas station somewhere between 1 p.m. and 2 p.m. Another person reported seeing it parked in the homestake area between 1 a.m. and 2 a.m. on July 1st. The caller reported it when they arrived in Lima and said she didn't think it was important enough to call it in right away. As the search for the blue Volkswagen sedan continued, more than 30 units of the Montana 4x4 Search Patrol joined the search for Susan. The search party included 60 men from various clubs across Montana. On July 2nd, Gallatin Sheriff's Deputy Ron Brown received a phone call. It was from a man who claimed he had abducted Susan. He demanded $50,000 in cash and gave instructions on delivering the ransom, but set no time of delivery. A couple of days before this phone call, 
Another phone call had come into the FBI's regional office in Denver, Colorado from the same man. During that phone call, he demanded $25,000 in ransom. At first, it was assumed that the phone call was a hoax. But during the second phone call, the man described how Susan had a unique fingernail on her index finger. This detail was never disclosed to the public, which gave the ransom demanders some legitimacy. While investigators and Susan's loved ones were sure that the phone call was legitimate, it was decided that the ransom demands would not be made public. On July 8th, a $3,000 reward was put forth by the Detroit News newspaper. This was for anybody that could provide information that led to Susan or for information that led to the person who had kidnapped her. The reward was being offered under a secret witness program, which meant the identity of informants would remain confidential. Just the day after the reward was announced, investigators publicly announced the ransom call. They asked for the caller to call them again. A statement was issued by the sheriff's office, which read, We would like the person who called the other night to please call again. Use the same identification procedures of the little girl that were used last time. The family is prepared to negotiate. The ransom call gave the family hope that Susan was still alive, with Marietta commenting, I keep thinking about Susie and what may have happened to her. All the while, the search continued. Susan's family kept vigil at the site she had vanished from. Concerned locals were keeping them well-fed with constant food parcels and home-cooked meals, as well as games for the children to keep them busy. Marietta commented, This is the most terrible time of our lives, but we've made friends here who we will keep the rest of our lives. The days continued to trickle past, and Susan's family held on with bated breath that the man would get in contact again. By the third week of the search, the Jagger family were inconsolable with grief. They had hoped that the ransom demander would call back and they could arrange a place to leave the money. They desperately hoped that Susan was still alive and that when the money was handed over, she would be returned to them. By week three, they had all but given up hope that Susan would be coming home. They began speaking about returning home. They couldn't stay at the campsite forever and tips had dwindled to a complete halt. Marietta commented, We've got to make the break sometime. We've tried to think positively, but it's so hard. I just can't imagine leaving now not knowing about Susie. Before July came to an end, the Jagger family picked up their camping equipment and solemnly drove back to Detroit one child down. What the family had anticipated being the trip of a lifetime turned into every parent's worst nightmare. As the family tried to return to some semblance of normalcy for the sake of their other children, the investigative team was cut to just one full-time detective. One afternoon, shortly after they had returned home, the phone began to ring. William picked up to be greeted by a man who claimed to have information about Susan's disappearance. There was a catch. The man demanded $140. And this wasn't the man from the previous ransom demand, it was somebody else. William contacted investigators, who told him to arrange to give the man $60 and ask him to call back to receive the rest. Investigators then put a tracking device on the Jagger's home phone. 
The man called back as anticipated, and police tracked the call to a phone booth on Detroit's west side. There, they arrested 28-year-old Michael Harbin. He informed the police that he was addicted to heroin and was desperate for money. Investigators were sure that Harbin had nothing to do with Susan's abduction and that he knew nothing that could assist in their investigation. He was charged with extortion. The Jaggers were seeking new tactics in searching for their daughter. In August, Marietta appealed to Governor Winfield Dunn and other state governors to use their prestige and high office in an effort to find Susan. She enclosed an open letter to whomever has our little girl and promised to comply with any instructions to ensure Susan's safe return. The search for Susan had scaled down massively, and while investigators with the FBI were still following up on any leads that came in, they were few and far between. In September, a man from California contacted the Jagger family to offer his assistance in the search. His name was Sam Wolfe and he was a psychic who claimed to have prior success in locating missing people. According to Sam, Susan had fallen and was in bad shape physically. He said she was, quote, lying in a canyon in a timbered area five or six miles south of Mill Iron. Investigators in Montana followed up on Sam's vision, but they could find no trace of Susan in the location he described. It was just another heartbreak for Susan's family. Later that same month, they received another phone call at their home. It was September 24th when Susan's 16-year-old brother, Daniel, picked up the phone. There was a man on the other end of the line who identified himself as Susan's kidnapper and made reference to the previous calls. At the time of the phone call, there was a recording device on the family's phone, which meant that the FBI could finally hear the kidnapper's voice. Once more, it was decided that the phone call would not be publicized, but the FBI were successful in tracing it to a payphone in Cheyenne, Wyoming. They promptly embarked on the payphone, but by the time they arrived, the caller was long gone. In October, the Jagger family appealed for money that could go toward a reward fund to pay tipsters who had information regarding Susan's disappearance. They hoped a large reward would motivate somebody to come forward with lucrative information that could crack the case wide open. Marietta stated, Somewhere, somebody knows something about Susie. Her body hasn't been found. We feel she's still alive. Before the end of the month, the reward fund had swelled to over $8,000. The family were pleased with the generosity of the public, but felt as though they needed more. Marietta said, it's embarrassing to ask for more, but I think it will take about $15,000 to get the information that we need. Over the forthcoming weeks and months, the reward fund continued to grow. To spread the word about Susan's abduction and the reward fund, 10,000 flyers were printed and distributed throughout the Rocky Mountain West. Before the end of the year, the fund reached $14,000. On February 5, 1974, Five-year-old Siobhan McGinnis vanished in Missoula's north side while walking home from a friend's house. Two days later, her body was discovered in a gully near the Tura exit from Interstate 90, just east of Missoula. She had been sexually assaulted and then stabbed to death. Hold up. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Missoula is located about 170 miles northwest of Missouri Headwaters State Park. A paralyzing fear enveloped the state of Montana as many began questioning whether Siobhan's murder was somehow connected to Susan's abduction. Susan wasn't the only child to vanish in the area, either. Around a month after Susan disappeared, 11-year-old Karen Tyler and 10-year-old Jessica Westfall vanished in the small community of Marion while riding their bicycles. Much like Susan, there was no trace of either girl, and many in the community feared that all four girls could be victims of some lone child predator. The small community of Manhattan and Montana were struck by their own tragedy on February 9th, when 19-year-old Sandra Dykeman Smolligan disappeared after attending a basketball game. The search for Sandra took a grisly turn just 10 days later, when ashes and charred bones were discovered on an abandoned ranch in Logan in southwestern Montana. Investigators descended on Lockhart Place the abandoned ranch, and recovered approximately 1,200 skeletal fragments, some of which still had flesh clinging to them. When searching the ranch, investigators found Sandra's car hidden underneath a tarp, hay, and farm machinery in a shed. They also came across a pair of women's underwear that was identified as belonging to Sandra by her mother. It was looking more and more likely that the bones belonged to Sandra, but they needed to be forensically examined by a pathologist. Curiously, the abandoned ranch was just a dozen miles away from the Missouri Headwaters State Park, where Susan had been abducted from eight months earlier. It was accessible via the back roads, but only by somebody who was familiar with the area. Sheriff Anderson traveled to Logan to speak with investigators there, but he announced to the public that he didn't think there was any connection between the burned remains and Susan. The victim profile was just far too different for a connection to be made. To investigators, it seemed more likely than anything that Susan's disappearance could have been linked to the murder of Siobhan and the disappearances of Karen and Jessica, and even the earlier murder of Michael. Over at the medical examiner's office, the remains were studied. There was a relatively intact lower jawbone, and it was compared to Sandra's dental x-rays. County Attorney Thomas Olson announced on February 26 that the lower jawbone had come back as a match to Sandra. He announced, We are now proceeding on the basis that she came to her death by criminal needs. 
The examination also revealed that there were older bones intermingled with Sandra's bones that appear to have possibly come from someone else. It was announced they were going to be submitted to a forensic anthropologist on the East Coast for further analysis. The examination at the Smithsonian Institution did very little to answer any of the questions that still lingered when it was determined that all of the bones belonged to Sandra. The remains could not be positively identified, and Susan's parents shared their belief that she was still alive. Marietta poignantly said, I have nothing to go on. I just feel she is still alive. I cannot give up hope until I have proof. The first anniversary of Susan's disappearance rolled around in June 1974. The investigation still continued, with each lead being followed up extensively. The details regarding the phone calls were kept under wraps. There was an immense fear that if the phone calls were publicized, it could scare the kidnapper off or make him do something extreme. Susan's family still wholeheartedly believed that she was still alive, and on the 25th of June, they received another phone call. It was from the same man as before, and this time, he told Susan's family that Susan was still alive, but he was unable to return her. The conversation between the kidnapper and Marietta lasted for around an hour, and he was able to describe Susan's appearance in great detail. A couple of days after this phone call, a rancher from Three Forks named Ralph Green contacted the police. He needed to report that someone had come onto his property and made long-distance phone calls to the Jagger family. His property was neighboring Lockhart Ranch. He said that he had noticed tire tracks on his ranch and evidence of phone line tapping, which meant that if the phone call to the Jagger family was traced, it would give the appearance that it came from somewhere else. Ralph had his suspicions of who had placed the call, a former employee named David Mirhofer. Mirhofer was born June 8, 1949, to parents Clifford and Eleanor. He was born in Bozeman, Montana, but the family moved to Manhattan shortly after his birth. On October 1, 1968, Mirhofer was drafted into the Marine Corps and deployed to a military base in San Diego, California, as part of the Signal Corps. Here, he attended a communications and electronics school. He completed his training before being sent to MCAS Cherry Point and then deployed to fight in the Vietnam War. In August 1971, Mirhofer returned to the United States with the National Defense Service Medal, a Vietnam Service Medal, and a Vietnam Campaign Medal. He continued with his military service at Marine Corps Base Camp Pendleton before being honorably discharged in 1973. Mirhofer moved back to the small town of Manhattan where he supported himself by working as a self-employed handyman. Investigators began looking into Mirhofer as a person of interest in the disappearance of Susan. The cloud of suspicion that he was under deepened when investigators learned he had checked into a truckway station in Cheyenne, Montana, the same day that the phone call had come in to the Jagger home from Cheyenne on September 24, 1973. 
While looking into Mirhofer's background, they discovered that he had once worked at Lockhart Ranch, where Sandra's remains were found. Mirhofer was looking more and more like the lead suspect in Susan's disappearance, but investigators needed more to go on. They wanted to see if his voice sounded familiar to Susan's family. The FBI arranged for a group phone call from Ralph's home to the Jagger home, and Mirhofer consented to take part in the phone call. It was like the audio version of a police lineup wherein a series of people, including Mirhofer, read aloud a portion of the first ransom request that was received by the family. Both William and Marietta listened intently to all of the voices. As soon as Mirhofer spoke, they identified his voice right away as the same person who had called them up numerous times. Mirhofer was arrested in August and brought to the police station to be interviewed. He denied any involvement in Susan's disappearance, and he consented to a polygraph examination. The results were inconclusive, but since there was no solid evidence connecting Mirhofer to Susan's disappearance, he was released without charge. Mirhofer then consented to a bout with truth serum at the state hospital in Warm Springs. Again, he denied any involvement in Susan's disappearance. Despite this, investigators were still sure that Mirhofer had abducted Susan. FBI agent Peter Dunbar had recently learned of psychological profiling, which was just in its infancy over in the FBI's training academy in Quantico. While FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover referred to it as hokum and voodoo, Agent Dunbar wanted to utilize it in this case. The profile surmised that the suspect who had taken Susan was a local white man, aged between 25 and 30 years old, with a background in the telecommunications industry to the military. It also categorized the suspect as a loner, who was regarded in his community as odd. The psychological profile of the suspect was the very first one ever created by the FBI, and it fit Mirhofer down to a T. Investigators began working on a new angle. They considered that if Mirhofer were to meet Marietta and witness her grief in person, he would confess. Marietta agreed to meet with Mirhofer and begged him to confess, but Mirhofer denied taking her daughter. While investigators were still trying to tie Mirhofer to Susan's disappearance, on September 17th, investigators in Gallatin County returned to the abandoned ranch where Sandra's burned remains were discovered. They were searching underneath an old outhouse when they came across another human bone. Much like Sandra's remains, it was charred. The bone was transported to the Smithsonian Institute, where it was determined that it had come from a child most likely a female, somewhere between six and eight years old. Investigators announced their belief that the human remains found belonged to Susan. As her family were trying to grasp the fact that they would never see their little girl again, the phone began to ring. It was September 24, 1974, when Marietta picked up and recognized the voice immediately as Mirhofer. He knew that he was the lead suspect in Susan's murder, but still, he couldn't stop calling the Jagger family. This time, he identified himself as Mr. Travis and told Marietta that he was angry over the fact that earlier phone calls had been recorded by the FBI. 
He then chillingly commented that they would never see their daughter alive again before slamming down the phone. On September 27th, David Mirhofer was finally arrested and charged with the kidnap and murder of Susan and with the murder of Sandra as well. He appeared in court and was ordered to be held without bond in the Gallatin County Jail. As details of the arrest and what led investigators to Mirhofer flooded headlines across Montana, people throughout the state were calling for the death penalty for what he had done to Susan. However, the death penalty was not applicable, at least not in Susan's murder. A new Montana criminal code had come into effect on January 1st, 1974 which meant that life imprisonment would be the most severe punishment if Mirhofer were convicted. Under the new code, deliberate homicide and aggravated kidnapping was written to include the death penalty under certain circumstances, such as kidnapping when the victim dies. But since Susan was killed before January 1st, 1974, this did not apply to her murder. However, it did apply to the murder of Sandra, which meant that if convicted, Mirhofer could be facing a death sentence. Meanwhile, investigators obtained a search warrant for Mirhofer's home. Inside a freezer, they found a human hand and two fingers, as well as bloodstained sheets. They also found a map of the campground where Susan had been abducted from, along with a notation around some trees which made reference to good cover. When these details were publicized, attorney Olson was asked whether cannibalism had a part to play in the murders. He responded, I don't know. You'll have to make a decision on that. Once Mirhofer was confronted with the evidence, investigators wanted to lure him into a confession. They asked Marietta to meet with him in jail, and he sat down with her and his attorney, Douglas Dasinger, and FBI Special Agent Byron Dunbar. Mirhofer made a full and detailed confession to the murders of Susan and Sandra to FBI Special Agent Dunbar. He explained that he had abducted Susan from her tent and choked her, but did not kill her immediately. He described how he took her to his pickup truck he had parked near the river and then drove her to the derelict Lockhart Ranch. Mirhofer said that while there, he began touching Susan inappropriately and then strangled her when she fought back. Special Agent Dunbar asked, And where is the body located? Mirhofer replied, Well, not much of it left. I put her head in that outhouse behind the ranch, and the rest of it was burned. Mirhofer admitted to dismembering Susan and then burning her remains. He then explained that Sandra had died on February 10th. She was one of his neighbors, and they had earlier gone on a date. When Mirhofer requested a second date, Sandra turned down his offer, he recalled. She was sleeping, and I jumped on her and choked her, and then tied her up and put a piece of tape around her mouth, and that I was gonna... While I was putting some of the clothes and stuff in the car, she evidently died. She couldn't get any air through the tape. Mirhofer described how he took her body out to Lockhart Ranch, where he cut it up with a hunting knife and hacksaw, and then burned all of the pieces. He further confessed to two more murders, the 1967 murder of 13-year-old Bernard Pullman and the 1968 murder of 12-year-old Michael Rainey, the Boy Scout who was bludgeoned and stabbed. 
Meerhofer said he had known Bernard when he killed him. He explained that he saw him and a friend playing on a bridge one afternoon, and he approached them and shot Bernard dead. As for Michael, he was a stranger. He recalled, I went to the park where the Boy Scouts were camped, and I was going to get somebody, and I opened up the tent, and I saw this little boy, and I couldn't force myself to take him, I guess, so I stabbed him in the back. Mirhofer went into lurid detail during the confession, but failed to provide a motivation. Just a couple of hours after the confession, on September 29, 1974, David Mirhofer was found hanging in his cell. He had fashioned a noose out of a towel. Marietta and William found meeting in the tragedy and stated to the Lansing State Journal, We're not bitter. It has brought many blessings. We know now that Susie has been safe all this time we've been worried about her. It was announced that an inquest would be held into Mirhofer's suicide to determine the time and circumstances surrounding his death and whether negligence was involved. During the inquest, defense attorney Dasinger and attorney Olson indicated they had requested close surveillance of Mirhofer. Defense attorney Dasinger stated, I requested that he be watched very closely because he might try to take his life. He was seriously shaken by his statement. Sheriff Anderson testified that he told his deputies to watch Mirhofer more closely than ever, but failed to send out additional personnel. He asked jail staff to check on Mirhofer every 30 to 40 minutes as soon as he was arrested, but said that following the confession, he ordered them to watch him even oftener. His request for Mirhofer to be watched closely was not passed on to the jailer who came on duty at 8 a.m. When jailer Howard Whitlock checked on Mirhofer at 10.25 a.m., he found him hanging from bars near the top of his cell. Mirhofer had climbed onto his bed, tied his neck to the bars with a towel, and then stepped off the bed. A pathologist testified that a person strangled in such a manner could not have lived longer than five minutes. He said the heart could beat somewhat longer, but the brain would die without oxygen. According to Officer Norman Lipinski, Sheriff Anderson had asked him and other officers to stand watch over the derelict cremation site of Sandra and Susan. Ultimately, a nine-member coroner's jury voted no criminal negligence, but they voted to censure Sheriff Anderson. In their unanimous decision, they stated, The Gallatin County Sheriff was careless and negligent in safeguarding the prisoner, Mirhofer, on September 29, 1974. He failed to be responsible for the prisoner by not communicating properly with the officers on duty or assigning adequate personnel to operate the sheriff's office and jail. In the aftermath of the coroner's inquest, Sheriff Anderson was voted out of office. In 1988, Mirhofer's younger brother, Alan, pleaded guilty to kidnapping a 13-year-old boy at knife point and sexually assaulting him. He was committed as a sexually violent offender and was released in 2017. This episode was researched and written by Emily G. Thompson. Editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman. Script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. 
And for more on the Law & Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. We will be back next week. Thank you for listening and please be safe.